Would you like to be a guest on Drinks with Tony? It's easy. All you have to do is write a novel. But Tony, how do I write a novel? Well, go to TonyDuchesne.com and sign up for my online beginning novel writing class. We start on March 4th and it runs for six weeks. And we go over all the elements of crafting a novel. Write that novel, publish it, get on the show, become hugely famous, maybe even adapt it to a film like I did. Go check out Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, directed by Eric Stoltz on Amazon Prime. Plug, it all starts with a novel, and you can start that in my novel writing workshop. Go to TonyDuchesne.com to sign up, and there's $50 off if you sign up on or before Valentine's Day. After that, it is $350 for the six-week course. And now, on with the show. Previously on Drinks with Tony. Desde la ciudad de San Francisco. Religion. The, like he probably got busted. Earn your stripes as a whatever it's called. I believe she was the first. That's correct. And it's, and it's essentially, and it's understandable. Well, and, and then let's clarify. And it ended my career like the next day. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And now stay tuned for this week's episode. This is Gabriel Hart and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Gabriel Hart. His new book is Virgins and Reverse and The Intrusion. It's two novellas by Gabriel Hart. Gabriel, how you doing, man? Very well. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me. I, I just interrupted you from a sip of beer. That was, you know, that was a close emergency call. Way worse things have happened to me. <laughs> so thanks for coming on, man. What was, um, what was the genesis of putting together uh, two novellas? Was that the plan all along? or? No, not at all. I, I, um, actually, the story, the intrusion, took place first, and it was. Uh, I I remember actually when I, the day I re- I decided to write a book, uh, we were laying out the. The first Jail Weddings record, and someone, <clears throat> I for, and I forget who, but someone, said, "Oh, you're including a lyric sheet. No one cares about that anymore." You know, because that seemed, you know, when everything was going digital, I'm, I'm all, what are you talking about? They're all, yeah, no one, that's kind of like an audacious move these days to include a lyric sheet with, you know. It, and it was weird. It was someone, it was someone who I respected a lot, but I was so surprised to hear that out of your mouth. And then I'm all like, oh, really? Well, watch this, you know. And then I finally, I, that almost like gave me the confidence to like start writing the story that I was, <clears throat> since I felt like it's almost like, a written word was like falling by the wayside a bit. I'm more like I have to, I have to do this if that attitude is out there at all. This like <clears throat> sort of, sort of it came out of kind of defiance a little in a in a way. Um, but yeah, you know, I the intrusion is basically uh, about the correlation between alcoholic blackouts and spirit possession which sounds bonkers and pseudoscience and stuff but i used to um as a kid and and a little bit into my 30s before i kind of <clears throat> pumped the brakes every once in a while I, I had a real bad problem blacking out drinking and stuff and um and it would get so far out that I would, um, my friends started calling me Zombie Gabe when I, I would get to that point. And um, it's a couple really strange nights where I kind of 
exhibited like superhuman strength by you know throwing people across the room and stuff and just some really weird stuff happened and i maintain this is all fiction but i um i actually started researching you know because there was this one night where everyone's all something something got you man like yeah like something you know we all kind of grew up a little superstitious anyway so it was it was an easy thing easy default kind of attitude like oh you got you got possessed by something think of all the horror movies we watched growing up and that kind of starts to have a parallel reality with you as a kid but um so yeah i started i started actually researching between my own experiences blacking out and being having this sort of disembodied mind and it's interesting you don't really black out as much as you kind of brown out Everything starts taking like a sepia tone kind of haze. You don't know your, you don't see the blackness until you don't see anymore, you know. But yeah, so I start. So I'm all okay. I'm gonna write, sort of um, a story, sort of like my favorite Nicolas Cage movie is Vampire's Kiss, and I kind of wanted to. I think a little bit of that kind of comes in here where you never know if he's really possessed by something or whether it's all in his head. But I just thought it was a really fun playground to kind of jump around in. And um, But I was really surprised. So I started actually treating part of the research, sort of like clinical research. And I went to the downtown LA library and just started reading tons of books that might touch on the subject. And... There, there had never been a book written about that particular correlation, but I found I started making lists of symptoms between the two, and the list was just staggering. Like it's almost like, almost as if to say it is the same thing, or at least our our perception, at least our perception of what spirit possession is, it's so similar to to blacking out. It's be, it seems like it's because something takes go takes over, and we're and we're all kind of energetic beings. So maybe we're opening ourselves up to, to energies if we if we block off part of our brain. Yeah, correct. That's basically what I found. Out. And I'm not I'm not like a doctor or a scientist, and I'm not even I don't think I'm even an authority on this in any way. But um, yeah, the research I did do was just really fascinating, and I actually included. I don't know if you noticed, but in the book, there's a list of 22 symptoms of both, both, um, both things. And I, yeah, part of me would like, you know, would love to challenge someone to a debate about it because it's it's kind of once you see that list and how similar they both are, it's kind of, you know, but it all has to do with I think our our perception of what spirit possession even is. Like I don't believe in ghosts or anything. I think ghosts are just what we perceive as ghosts are just emotional residue, really. Interesting, because um, I, yeah, I mean, I grew up in such a weird way where I, you know, I did believe in angels and ghosts and demons, and I would be demon possessed because the, the weird shit I went through. And then as I've left, I'm kind of in a whole not sure thing, you know. And which is a fertile place to be, I think. Not not being sure, yeah, because then any anything can happen. Yeah, and I and I don't know if like for, I don't know if um, if somehow our energy sticks around for a little bit or not. I have no idea. I wouldn't perceive it as a ghost, essentially. But 
Yeah, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that out. I, but I, I love just the idea because it's so open because we don't know. We, we have no clue. Right. Right. But yeah, I think I think I mentioned in the book like when you walk into a hotel room and you just get like sort of choked, sort of suffocated by this like presence and you know, and I think the first thing you're going to think, oh, this place is fucking haunted or whatever, but no, it's just so many people. Remember my dad telling me at an early age like you want to have a lot of people around, you know, you want to have a lot of friends, but the more you let people pass through your threshold of your house, the more different people, the harder it is to have control over your space. So I think that's kind of something that happens in hotel rooms where, I mean, think of all the crazy shit that happens in a hotel room, that stuff that you'll never know. Think of all the crazy stuff you do in a hotel room. And I think a lot of that just ends up sticking to the walls, whether uh, <laughs> whether literally or, or, or figuratively, you know. <laughs> Back in the days when you would be like, oh, $20 for that porn channel? No, I never watch. <laughs> right, right. That's not me. <laughs> um, and, you're, and you're sitting there all relaxed, and they're like, did you have a date last night? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so anyway, it's it's kind of... So that kind of wrapped up, and then... I um I self-published it and then we're this is like 10 years ago now. I self-published the intrusion just kind of a thin just cuz I thought that the idea was so like oh if I don't put this out someone else will think of it, you know, cuz I almost thought it was like right it was so part of it to me was so zeitgeisty at the time. I just figured like this is someone's going to touch on that. And I guess like like Hubert Selby Jr. kind of did it with sex. With uh, did you ever read The Demon? No. He kind of did that with with sex instead of alcohol, which was interesting. And I ended up reading that as I was writing this. But um, but yeah, so I had I felt like this race to get it out. So I self published it, and then um, the weirdest thing happened. Like it was only out there for three days, and I think I sold like twelve copies or something. And this guy, who I, I don't want to name, he, he was a, he ended up being a huge part of my life, but a very unfortunate part of my life. This, this guy, he was a writer. His girlfriend was a big Joe Weddings fan, and he, his girlfriend hipped him to this book, and, and she, she was basically, hey, my boyfriend is really interested. He could probably get you this sweet publishing deal. This, um, you should let him re-edit it and, and do it right. So I took it off there, and... We got together and we kind of became really fast friends. Me and this guy—he's—he's he's a writer as well, or was a writer. Well, you, you got to tell me off mic so I know who who it is, so then I won't be—you know—I'll be like, oh yeah, that guy's a red flag. <laughs> oh, to like tell you now? No, no. no oh, no. Like, later. Yeah. Um, That's that, and that won't be for the DVD commentary. This is how writers work. We yeah. we we just we talk, but we never say publicly. <laughs> so, not to totally interrupt you. Sorry there. Uh, <laughs> appropriate. Um, so we met and we got things going and he was, he was going to be my liaison for this, this, this kind of blossoming publisher. And, um, then all of a sudden I, he vanishes, like not responding to my emails. I'm all typical, like just so typical Los Angeles, you know, like someone talking to hear themselves talk and who knows what their motives are. 
But then he finally gets back to me and he says, Gabe, I'm so sorry. My stepdad murdered my mother. And it's like, and so it blew, it totally blew open to this whole court case and he was traumatized and grief stricken and I'm all like, and we became kind of even closer friends as a result, but the book kind of just fell by the wayside and sort of, he unfortunately just kind of got really, went really way off the deep end and stuff and I was trying to be a best friend as I possibly could because it was just a horror horrific circumstances you know um and so while intrusion was kind of in in limbo like that i'm all you know i'm i'm kind of being there for my friend going through this grief grief process i'm i need to keep writing so i had started writing this ex of mine kind of like a love letter not not in like an attempt to get her back but just like just a very nostalgic kind of love letter like remember this you know and now what now were you writing a letter that you were going to send to her or were you writing a letter more for yourself it wasn't like a letter on lined paper i think it started out as kind of like an art piece kind of thing and i and i just kept going and i kept going and i kept going and the next thing i knew i had i had uh filled 20 pages i'm like i can't send this to her you know this is i look like a psycho at this point and then i started I kind of started to, I guess I started being surprised. Oh, this is how I really feel. Like, okay, then all the pain and suffering started to come out. And um, when you have when you have a problem blacking out when you're younger, you you don't start to not remember half your life anymore. So. When I was writing stuff like this, it was sort of an attempt to just remember stuff, how it happened, as much as I could. Um, and so before I knew it, it, it was turning into, like, a, a novel or a novella or, or whatever. And um, I was, like, I was telling my friend Travis Keats-Ross the other night, I I, uh, I guess the way I write, it's, it's basically speculative fiction, but based in memoir sort of like I don't know I, I would hate to compare myself to anyone but I think once like think of the complexity of, of, of emotion and think of the non-complexity of the English language so I feel like I'll, I'll kind of hit a wall when I'm writing when it's kind of based on real life and I, I'll sort of whip the story into these kind of outrageous um, heavily allegorical kind of twists in order to convey an emotion that there's no words for. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it does. And it does, definitely makes sense because you come from a, um, a musician's background. I mean, as far as, far as um, I, then my, my earpiece fell out. There we go. I feel like Tom Brokaw on location and my earpiece just fell out. Then I put the wrong one back in. All right. Um, but, but I, I mean, I, I feel like... Because you've been you've been doing you've been jail weddings and you had bands before that you've been writing lyrics for years so that it feels like um, tell me if I'm wrong but when you're when you're writing as a uh, as a as a frontman for a band um, I feel like you're essentially doing that is getting emotions getting emotional beats down more than a story down 
Yeah. yeah, I guess so. And I think, I think the 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 book is is lyrical. Whether I meant to, I think there is a rhythm a rhythm to the prose and everything. And I, I kind of I hope one day it's not so lyrical in a way where I I could kind of just write like. Where no, maybe no one knew I was a songwriter or something. Because I, yeah, I feel like if I was gonna critique this book, maybe it's too lyrical in a way, or like there, maybe there's too much, too much alliteration or something like that. But um, I, I managed to clean a lot of that up towards the last uh, bit of it. Actually, my editor John Paul Garnier is sitting over there reading at the bar right now, right, o- right over there. Good looking fella. And he'll be he'll be reading with us tonight. So yeah, he was he was very he was the guy that you know spent spent uh, the most time with the book besides besides me. So um, as far as the intrusion, which uh, you self published about ten years ago, what um, how much different is the uh, one in this uh, book compared to the original? I'd say it's completely different. Besides the premise. Um, isn't it intriguing how like stories grow and morph and change? Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's totally fascinating, and it's kind of out of out of your hands. I mean, you can only plan so much, and then um, yeah, it's thank God. I mean, uh, it, it was ten years ago, but thank God it was only released to the public for three days because I once I got my copy in the mail you know that's back before i knew anything about proof copies and all this stuff and i was just like mortified by what i saw like yeah it was just ridiculous i've always i it 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 was it was born from such a place of defiance like i have to do this and and so it was sort of originally kind of rushed and um that's the worst thing any kind of artist to do is just rush anything. Like when when your motives for doing something is is for money or I better do this before someone else does. Like you're gonna you're not gonna come up with anything good. Then all you have is the concept and not the execution. You know. So right. My I unfortunately fell into that. I initially fell into that trap. So as much as crazy as it went with, um, you know, the guy that stepped in and told me to took it off Lulu was a huge huge blessing because if that if that was my first uh liter- literary attempt i i would yeah who know uh, yeah i would just be mortified to this day so um and um so you've, you've been in los angeles for, well you were in los angeles for about 20 years which is which is such like i mean you even use a lot of references to like real addresses in uh la and the silent movie theater is that based on an actual movie theater gig that you had yeah, so the silent movie, the silent movie theater might actually be a cursed, a, a properly cursed um, building, especially since I mean it's no, so it was taken over by Cine Family, who basically that before the whole, when the whole Me Too thing really exploded, they, that was like one of the first things in institutions in L.A. because they were like, those guys were sexually harassing their whole staff, and it was that really kind of help blow the whole doors open on that whole crazy climate last year. Um, yeah, which was a bummer. Cause I mean, I, when I came down to LA, that was one of the first places where I went and there was the offbeat films and they would put such great, I saw, I saw, um, what's his name? Larry Flint there do an interview as, as, as we were watching Larry Flint, um, 
they were showing slides. They're like, don't take any pictures of these. These are not for the public. And he's being interviewed. And I'm just like, I love living in L.A. <laughs> yeah, we were and we were so excited when those guys took the, the movie theater over because that was like our church, the silent movie theater. But yeah, it it just it, it we were so worried that it was going to fall into the wrong hands and it turns out eventually it was the wrong hands like some bad hands <laughs> you know but but yeah that i was i was uh, i mean it i guess it had a good run in in um you know in whatever c- creepy secrecy it did but um yeah so where was i going with that I don't know. You were going somewhere? Do you have it? Do you have the thought? I guess to, well, you asked about both books and why they're being, I guess, why they're being presented together now. They, oh, I don't think I did, but go ahead. That's a really good question. Okay. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure if I, I had lost a thought, but yeah. That's what happens when you black out when you're younger. <laughs> this is only my first drink of the night. It's going good so far. Um, so I basically started writing Virgins in Reverse realizing it was becoming a, a long a long form attempt and and then um then all these sort of strange um synapses started forming between the two stories like i realized i was writing about the same character sort of someone loosely based off myself but then sort of another instance where time isn't linear especially in the creative process cuz i i wrote the intrusion then I wrote Virgins in Reverse, and it was sort of, it happened out of order in a way, where you'll, and then so Virgins in Reverse, you read that first, because the intrusion actually answers a bunch of mystery from from that one. So it's, it was, I thought it was really interesting the way that worked, and um, a lot of, I left a lot of it sort of open and sort of, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it like a little Lynchian not that I was making it up and I was as I was going along but a lot of I guess the heavy alleg- allegorical element to it and um, it was really I, I felt like when when Tav Falco wrote the ended up writing the foreword I was just like and he he's he made all these connections between the stories I would have never ever even thought of before like bring in all this greek mythology and all this all this stuff and and that once i read his foreword and how how it came across to a guy like him i it gave me a lot of confidence i'm all like oh okay mission mission accomplished so isn't it i i love um when people find things that i had no clue i was i i thought i was doing and after a while you they go oh yeah so i noticed that you know this was a parallel to this this mythology and i don't even know what the mythology they're talking about is and i just nod my head and go thanks for noticing you know <laughs> yeah i mean you don't and you don't want to make you don't want everything to make sense you know but we i think we're we force ourselves i think we kind of I, maybe that's part of the process as like an audience like we need to talk about it afterwards and make some kind of sense to kind of bring us back down to earth in, in a way you know so I yeah I, I just it's going to be interesting to see what uh, what people what people get out of it and it's been yeah the reception's been 
so far exceeding my expectations. So. Well, and what's great about it is the reader has – they come in with their own experience. It's almost like they have their own relationship with the book. They have, a, they have their unique relationship with it that as an author, you don't get to have that relationship that these people have. So it's, it's, just, it's almost a mind fuck that um, – to. Like, I, you know, where I just want to, you know, sometimes I want to go, no, no, that's not what I meant. And you're just like, no, no, don't take that away from their experience. Let them have it. No, I, I completely, I completely agree. The only thing, I guess the only thing I would be rigid about is that I, I do stand by that it's fiction. You know, I think, I think one of the worst questions, not one of the worst questions, I think it's a natural question, but a question I don't like being asked about something like this is like, so how much of this is true or how much of this is based in real life because it's not this isn't tmz or something it's or a gossip column this is and that's not the point it's like it of course it has to start from a place of a place that you know already um but so that question i yeah i never know how to answer that and to be honest i can't even fucking remember what (laughs) as far as this book i can't parts of it i can't even remember what is what is fiction and what's not anyway and i think Maybe that's kind of the the fun of it for me. So, um, what what part of this is you, and what parts of this are true? <laughs> oh, I almost spit my beer all over. Here. I know. I, I, out of, <laughs> not out of. Uh, <laughs> I should have waited for you to take a sip. <laughs> I got you on that because I, I I looked really serious about the question. I was going to do a and a tonight after the reading, but maybe I shouldn't, knowing that you'll, you'll probably... <laughs> no, I, no, I want... Dang it, I, I don't do... I, don't, I only do stupid shit when, I, when it's on uh, my little forum here. I, I don't want to mess up a, another venue. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> yeah, I can raise my hand and ask that direct question. Yeah. I'll be like... Turns out everyone else had the same question. Yeah. You just... You're the sacrificial lamb for... Well, the problem is when you open up for Q and A, a lot of the questions are, "How do you get published? How do you get an agent?" And you're and you're just like, "Have you written anything?" You're like, "No," but and you're like, "Well, you got to write something." You know? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one one interesting, I guess, change of perception I had with writing when I was writing this. Like at the time, I I thought like, "Oh, you got to." you got to earn earn it to be a writer and you know it's only you know you really have to pay your dues which you do but like i th- feel like everybody should write like i'm su- so surprised not everyone writes even even if it's just journals or something like what why would you not write you know what i mean why would you not give yourself that that voice um but also like god fucking help you <laughs> If you're if you're gonna take it seriously, like it's been the, it's the most challenging thing I've I've ever done in my life, and so it's, it's more challenging than the than your uh, jail weddings and your other music projects. Yeah, completely different. Because I mean, writing a book is something that you. It was interesting. Like, and I I actually wrote about this the other night for the High Desert Writers Hub website, but when. John Christopher, who runs Traveling Press, um, kind of asked me. He gave me my copy of the book, or it was like the proof copy, and he he said, "How's it feel? You're an author now." And I just got, I just felt this like 
darkness, this new darkness just like seeping into my head. And I, I can't remember what I, how I responded to him. I think I, I was, I said, oh, it feels cool. It's a relief or whatever. And I was really so thankful that they came in when they did and kind of rescued me from limbo. But yeah, this, this new darkness kind of seeped into my, my soul of just like, oh shit, this is complete. This is something that is, is my own and my own only, but this is complete accountability that I can't wiggle away from now. And that, that was a terrifying, a terrifying thing. And I knew I would feel like that, but once you, it, you let that, you have that realization. It's like, you could feel it in your stomach that like, oh, the, the real work isn't even done yet. And, but then I went home and I started writing and I felt a whole lot better about it. Yeah. It, um, cause I, yeah, I feel like, I feel like everyone could write, but they don't give themselves the permission to write. And there's so many reasons for that. And they don't want, a lot of them don't want to dig into themselves. And that's, you know, I think good, good novelists dig into themselves and, and have to have a, you know, and you bring up a good point. You're accountable. You're totally accountable from top to bottom. I, I kind of feel like with novels and with um, stand-up comedy, those are the two where you're just like, you live and you die by your name, which is kind of awesome at the same time. Absolutely. And that you, that's funny you bring up stand-up comedy because I was on this podcast the other night with this guy, Travis Keats Ross, and he somehow the comedy was brought up because this funny thing happens every time... Um, you know, I'll be really serious about something I'm working on, whether it's lyrics or a book, and then I'll 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 read it out loud to someone, or someone will read it, and they'll say this is really funny, and and I kind of figured it out while I was talking to Travis. It, um, I think when either a writer is funny or a comedian is funny, it's usually when. Um, all the flowery language is taken away and you're just super matter of matter of fact about something. And I think it's like the, the sort of daringness of just be, telling something exactly how it is sometimes is just the funniest fucking thing ever, especially when it comes out of, you know, with, with, a, with a comedian, it's like the, the delivery and the timing. But yeah, I think for a writer, it's just when it's just completely bare bones, like when you, when you stop being poetic, you know? And I... It's funny when I was talking to Travis the other night, I I realized that as I was kind of talking, I thought that was kind of a cool because there was a time where, so I think a guy like me could could be offended by someone thinking something I wrote was funny. Like, what are you, you know, are you mocking me? You know, like this is serious d- demon exercising shit. You know, but but no, they like co- like if you're talking about survival, like comedy is like paramount you know like that's how you get through stuff and that's you know if some if you make someone laugh by something you wrote then that's again mission accomplished you know? yeah i mean the the the, mo- the the tragedies of just being human it's actually really funny if you just skew it a little differently you know so actually and that was that's actually really interesting because when i was writing before i wrote virgins in reverse when i when I broke up with the girl that I was kind of writing that initial love letter to, I remember whose, whose name is Cecilia now in the book. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Um, 
Yeah, correct. But I was I one of the first things I did is um is I read it sounds like a super emo thing a teenager would do, but I I started reading the, the Sorrows of Young Werther, you know, um, which is a really you know it's like a rom- romant tragic romantic book where this this guy is writing letters to his to his ex and being very fatalistic and stuff and I it's a classic and I I was reading it and I was laughing out loud the whole time I was reading it just because of the whole <clears throat> just how absurd someone taking themselves that seriously was and how how it's considered such a such a classic but but I was reading it as if it was comedy you know what I mean and I like the more I think about it that it probably informed informed virgins in reverse quite a quite a bit actually yeah so um, you grew up in Southern California Orange County and you moved um, when did you move to ho- like directly to Hollywood or to the and w- when when was this I, now now I'm asking about the Los Angeles experience because this always intrigues me because I've only seen it from Northern California until a few years ago right um, so wait, what's the question? When did I move? I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, no, well, yeah. When did you move to LA? And um, and 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 when were you were you in the music scene already when you moved yeah, to LA? So I had a band called the Starvations. We were kind of like, you know, death rock, cow punk kind of entity. We'd always get compared to the Gun Club and whatnot. We uh, oh, that's a good comparison. Yeah, and luckily. We started getting those comparisons after we formed the band. I, I basically found out about the Gun Club after I had formed the band, which was kind of a neat thing. Um, but, yeah, so we started in Orange County, and I kind of moved. John Paul and I, John Paul was the bass player, actually. So The handsome fellow at the bar. We moved to Hollywood together in 98, very just like, very overnight decision like because ba- we were basically by that time we were on a first name basis with all every police officer in in Laguna Beach and once you if you need yeah my best advice is just to leave town once that once you notice that happens to you so did you spend were there nights in jail and stuff in Laguna Beach yeah t- yeah to to well the yeah I went to jail t- once I was and I was one of the better behaved kids of our of our gang so but yeah once in jail then i went to jail in orange county after i moved to la that's a whole other story but yeah i've been to jail. So, so so how i mean what what was the longest uh time you spent in jail a couple days but it, but a couple days still feels like hell i would assume yeah yeah of course yeah jail anyone that anyone that romanticizes jail and tells jail war stories is a moron you know it's like the worst the fucking worst thing ever um but so we so we moved we kind of even though our guitar player and drummer were still in orange county we kind of moved the band up there to be an la band and and yeah we um i lived there for 20 years and you know just just your like your experience in san francisco i just started seeing everything change and just like the streets just started to have this sad hue to it and i just started being a struggle you know i think you don't like to hear yourself complain about your own city anymore and not do something about it you know so i i found myself in that in that sort of conundrum and my lady at the time 
and I, we we would go to the desert to escape LA as as much as we could, and I finally found a way I could permanently escape LA, and and like let's be honest, the desert's turned into LA's backyard by now anyway, so it's not really that far away. It's it's far enough away to to feel like you're on another planet, but um. Yeah, I mean, I still come come back here for band practice once a week and for for stuff like this. So it's it's not it's no skin off my back. Band practice with Jail Weddings, and you have another band now, too, right? Yeah, we um we have kind of a Jail Weddings side project called Sirens in the Night, which is um we've taken the the Jail Weddings backup singers, and now they're they're the front gals, and we're doing and so I'm playing uh, like a Korg MS20 synthesizer and. So it's kind of turned into this whole suicide meets the Shangri-Las kind of thing. Um, so yeah, uh, Dave Clifford, our drummer, he's he had a baby with his girlfriend in Germany. So he's he's kind of being being a dad, um, best dad he can, until we get Joe Weddings going uh, later later this year. So so yeah, and yeah, it's sort of we might have a whole new lineup change this year. It's sort of uh, we're sort of negotiating all that right now. I think, but um, looks like my little brother is going to be playing guitar so that that should be really fun my little brother oliver hart so he's one of yeah probably one of the three best guitar players are now so that should be fun yeah uh how how much longer you're how old is he oliver he'll kill me for not knowing he just turned 26 i want to say 26 yeah yeah so and has he been in other bands i mean i'm sure he has yeah he's in this band ecstatic union who are, who are really great yeah they're so yeah, that'll be cool having blood, blood in the band, you know. Yeah. Be like Red Cross, except you guys started a lot later, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're just about to put out um, our third album called Blood Moon Blue this year. So gearing up for that, that we started recording that like an embarrassingly long time ago. Um, I think before before I moved to the desert, which has been three years now. But um, yeah, it's been. We put out our last record in 2013, so yeah, it's sort of like, and I'm kind of, in a way, I'm kind of proud that we've taken the time that we have, because I think there's all this pressure these days to be prolific and produce and just stay in everyone's frontal lobes, and I think that's a horrible, like, I, I don't think it's it's a great thing in the long run for artists to feel like they, they have to be producing all the time, like, it, it's, again, once, you're, once your motives end up becoming like people's attention span and stuff like that you're doing it wrong you know so i'm really proud that we took that we took our time i mean probably longer than i would have preferred but but um yeah life life and love uh get in the way quite a bit you have to and you have to remember to be a human being before you're uh some some artist you know you have to you can't forget to live you know and I feel like um, I feel like each project, whether you're you know working on a novel or film or whatever, it it has it has its life it's its own, and they and and they all have they all have different like gestation periods. It's not like you put out an album a year, you put out a novel a year, unless of course you're like Daniel Steele and you're you or someone like that in the in the game of the romance or but but when you're you know doing literary fiction and stuff like that, it's yeah. I, it's funny you brought up the just, whole gestation period thing. I did. Um in Joshua Tree, we do these things called these things called Teddy Talks, where it's like this monthly community-based kind of TED Talk kind of thing. And I did, I did a Teddy Talk on the whole the gestation period of the creative process, and I kind of related it to 
to this to these twin novels I have and and the new jail weddings record and just sort of how frustrating it was but now it just kind of all makes sense and you know I I hope I hope especially like the younger the younger crowd kind of takes can take something from that and just like yeah just don't forget to live you know don't forget to like yeah make mistakes and just just yeah don't forget to just be present with your friends and not not say you're busy all the time and um you know yeah just you don't have to produce all the time to be to be an artist you know it kind of scares me when I see a lot of these, like, you know, all these kids on YouTube getting to be big stars right away. And and I'm just like, man, you know, there's part of me that's like, I wish we had the access to that when I was a kid. And at the same time, it was kind of nice just to have a skateboard and a Walkman and to be hanging with your friends. Yeah. How do you think we would have we would have uh, handled YouTube like growing up with YouTube? We probably would have made like actual movies if you think of, you know, like I know I, if I had access to that. Just knowing how much into movies I was as a kid, that would probably be my first, you know. But at the same time, uh, if we had that access, like it was a smash cut, here you go, here are your tools. But go, but getting to that point, we had to go seek out movies. We had, we were the generation that had to go flip through vinyl for hours and hours. We were the ones that had to go. To, I used to go to the library and get my VHS to catch up on movies I hadn't seen as a kid. And I would just scour and wait. And it was like, you know, calling my friends going, what about this one? What about this one? And not having the access actually, I think. Bonds were created like that, like with friendship, like very. Yeah, it's like we are all. I, I overuse the word synapse, but I, I think of stuff on just like cellular levels so much. But we are all these just like connecting synapses for stuff we were into. And I think. I don't know. I and I, I don't want to, I don't want to talk too much smack on the young generation because I think, fuck them. <laughs> I think I think millennials also have a really bad rap, especially coming from the older the older generation. We were we were lucky. Like, did you did you have a lot of older friends when you were growing up? Um, not so much. I mean, I, w- I was also grown up in a confined uh, community, so uh, but. I did. I did seek out um, going to record stores and finding out what what punk rock records were coming out, and you know the guys that would scare the shit out of me. It had to have been like some older guys that would have like imparted some knowledge to you yeah. and stuff. So I think, yeah, I feel like with with millennials, and that's almost become like a bad word, which is absurd. I think. I think they. The more we backlash against millennials, I think the less the worse it's going to get because they're not going to have that that sort of that that bond like because all my friends when i was growing up were, were older and they were they were always imparting knowledge down to me and i just feel like there needs to be way more of that happening and not just like this sort of this sort of scapegoating with the generation coming up or else you know we're we're gonna we're gonna be responsible for for that we're going to be creating a problem that doesn't need to be there. You know? No, I agree, and I, I mean, and I hate doing blanket term, blanket labels like that because I know a lot of millennials that are like they're hardworking, they're reading books, they're they're. they're it's not. I mean, look at us. Um, you know, 
when we, uh, I mean, you know, the older, I guess I remember the older people in the 80s were just like, you know, the guys that wore the half shirts and drove around in muscle cars and they were kind of doofuses and they would just scare the shit out of me. So I'd just stay as far away from them as possible. But, you know, it's a, but we survived uh, amidst, uh, amidst that. Yeah, I just think it's kind of our responsibility to be like big, big brothers with like the, the younger generation coming up or else they are going to think we're assholes and you know we'll create monsters that way you know it's yeah i think we need to kind of get a hip to that it's almost crazy like we're, we're almost getting past millennial what's what's the generation after millennial do you know the term for that i don't know i don't know i mean i thought yeah i guess what i would be a zennial right the, isn't that the because t- i'm not generation x i'm 41 how old are you I'm 49 so i'm generation x yeah so i would be i would be they call it as a zennial isn't it yeah, because it's yeah, it's kind of like a weird lost um, sort of like fell fell between the cracks of kind of yeah. Well, like we're kind of like the one foot in and one foot out of technology, like technology being the only thing people know, right? Because yeah, like I'm still I'm still a total luddite with I only can do stuff to a certain point where i just give up with computers you know and i i i take a sort of pride in that but um that's also shows how uh limiting my life is you know so um so you so living in joshua tree and uh having a band in la uh you've been able to navigate that pretty well now yeah yeah is that you're in joshua tree or i'm in this place called morongo valley so I don't know if you're familiar with that area, but you go, you get on the 62 off of the 10, and you go up that first windy, windy grade, and then there's that, there's the five, seven miles of of a small town where you're just all like, why the fuck would anyone live here? That that's where I live. Yeah, it's kind of this a weird nondescript town, all dirt roads, where it's like um, where you might stop for gas or something. We just got our second stoplight there. Right on my street, which is it could have been any street, and they picked they picked ours. So we were, we we were real proud of that. Now, see that would freak me out because aesthetically, like even coming from San Francisco to here, everything just felt really spread out, and it, it like I was kind of like thrown for a loop of how spread out everything is. I don't know if I can handle the desert and being that far away from civilization. I I don't know if you had any uh, growing pains with that. I I didn't at all, but I got to see. I got, I got to, yeah, I got to see it happen just um, on New Year's Day with with my girlfriend. She had never, she had never been to. I didn't realize she had never been to proper nothingness desert before. Because because Morongo Valley is, I guess, mid desert because it's kind of lush and stuff. She had been to Joshua Tree plenty and stuff, but we we went. To- well, um, she might have been bugged because she had the gag on and the blindfold as well. <laughs> the, the trunk ride wasn't. Great. <laughs> no, I gave her. Uh, I cut out little eye holes in the in the blindfold, but no, we started. We so we had spent the night in Twenty Nine Palms, and then we went to the Palms um, Bar in Wonder Valley, and then we, so and on New Year's Day we went to. Do you know where Amboy Crater is? No, I don't know. It's it's this cra- It's a volcano in the middle of nowhere, but you have to go really out there. And she she was driving, and she started panicking. And I and I'm all like, "What's what's up, baby? All right?" And she's all like, "I've just." I've never seen this before, and I, I don't know what to do. I feel like it's kind of it's a vacuum that's going to kind of suck me, 
suck me up and like what if we you know all that I think it's yeah it's sort of fear of the unknown or fear of um, I guess the fear of new newness where you're I think we panic when our our minds are trying to process new things that are happening to us and and I settled her down and and um and but yeah it's she kind of got out of it real quick but yeah I had I had never seen that happen to anyone and she's a really she's a real brave girl it was it was uh surprising to see that happen to someone yeah that would happen to me that would happen to me definitely yeah um and how close to Poppy and Harriet's are you? Do you do you head over there? Is that like a is that like because that's kind of all I know of. I haven't even been to Poppy and Harriet's. Yet. I don't I don't hang out there as much as someone would think. It's it's kind of a real. It's a it. I love Poppy and Harriet's, but it's a shit show. It's like you can't. God, I think to get a reservation there, it's like you have to book it like three weeks in advance to get a nice ta- table in front of the stage, and it's. You have to really commit to go, and there has to be a band, either a local band I really, really want to see, or, you know, I I like going to Lander's Brew, which is this roadhouse in the middle of nowhere that my buddy Joe Garcia, he does the Saturday nights there, and that's like a really quiet, it's a really old bar, no light pollution around, and Lander's where, you know, it's just, I think you might know the, the big Lander's earthquake, I think kind of put it on the map or help <laughs> help try to wipe it off of the map um but yeah lander's brew is like kind of a roadhouse that you always wish could exist it's just like you could you walk in and you just smell the history of it and um it's ever when someone plays the whole bar kind of shuts up and it's a really captive crowd and um yeah everything joe garcia is doing on the saturday nights is just kind of exactly what i wanted to find out there where it's more like quiet uh very attentive and people jamming together and um just all always like a special guest coming on stage and yeah i can't i can't say enough good things about it so yeah if you're ever in the area on a saturday night go to lander's brew you will not be disappointed Oh, dude, it was great having brews with you over here do they, what do they call it tax tax what am i tax yeah Gabriel Hart, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Thanks for having me, Tony. Gabriel Hart, check out his twin novellas, Virgins in Reverse and The Intrusions, and also his band, Jail Weddings. Hey, Tony, we want more. We want more. You got it. Lydia, Lydia Millett has written a ton of awesome books. Here's my interview with her from the Drinks with Tony archives when she was promoting her book, Oh Pure and Radiant Heart. We had a chat at Tommy's Joint in San Francisco, and it's on tape for the record. Enjoy the show. Now, uh, with your novel, O Pure and Radiant Heart, uh, it seems like you had to do a lot of research for that. What was that process like? Did you have to do traveling because there's a lot of different locations and stuff? I did. I went to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which was the most difficult part of my research travels. I went to the Nevada test site and the Trinity site, which is on the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. Um, I went to Los Alamos itself. But Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I actually interviewed survivors, A-bomb survivors, and um, and that was odd. It was... It was more painful, and the, museum, the peace museums there, seeing them and going going through that 
uh, was, was difficult to a certain degree. Although actually the most difficult part of the research was reading. Reading um, in particular a book called Death and Life, uh, which is a very famous book about the victims of the bomb, was, was actually the hardest, the hardest thing I had to do to write this book. But yeah, and I did. I, you know, I amassed huge, a huge library for for just one person of books about the three scientists, biographies of Oppenheimer and Szilard and Fermi, and also just sort of books on nuclear history. Scoured secondhand bookstores in New York and other parts of the country, and um, I just did a huge amount of reading for about a year before I started to write. Oh wow! Yeah, and the research trips came later. I actually really wanted to go to uh, the Marshall Islands to Bikini Atoll but I couldn't afford the trip. <laughs> and the other thing is that to see any of the effects of the A-bomb testing there, you basically have to dive, do wreck diving. Uh-huh. And, and all the, obviously all the ships that were, that were subjected to the H-bomb test there are underwater. But the minimum depth is like 150 feet, so you have to be an expert scuba diver. And, and I've been on like one scuba dive. It's like a resort dive in Belize. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I would have had to become a serious scuba diver, and plus the costs were prohibitive. It's probably about five thousand or six thousand dollars just to go. So, uh, so I never got to go to the Bikini Atoll, but Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and Tokyo. I wanted to go there so I could take my characters there with some degree of authenticity. Although I don't necessarily believe in authenticity generally in fiction, uh, <laughs> but I just I felt with such difficult subject matter that I had to have some. I had to make a pilgrimage there myself. Yeah. And um, with the, that translated, I'm sure, very well with the semi-nervous breakdowns that some of the scientists have in, when they visit those locations. Yeah, because there's no way to really assimilate the kind of, the kind of visions you have at an A-bomb museum. Yeah. There's, there's just no way to properly assimilate it and... Although most people don't leave the museum and have a nervous breakdown, that to me is sort of a symbolic expression of the blankness that you encounter when you try to understand what you've seen, a sort of mental cognitive blind spot or something. Did you, uh, did you get grants or funding for some of the travel? I wish. I did actually apply to something sometime. But, you know, I hate applying for things. I hate applying for things. It's demoralizing. I feel like a, an imposter. And I never get it. You know, I never get... No one ever wants institutionally to support me. Um, and I, I don't complain about that. I think it's probably a good sign. I think it's so much harder to be an interviewer than an interviewee. Oh, really? Oh, absolutely. I used, to, I used to do a few... Yeah, exactly. I used to do a few interviews for when I worked at uh, Hustler magazine. I would occasionally have to do interviews for some of the other magazines under Larry Flint's umbrella. Uh-huh. And I just found it so stressful. I would get so nervous before I had to interview people. And I don't get nervous before people interview me. Oh, wow. But when I was the interviewer, it was so hard. Yeah. Um, you have, to have things to say all the time. Whereas, and you have to generate it. And sort of just more passive if you're being interviewed, I feel like. That's why I write it down. I would have to. I would have to. Uh, speaking of uh, working at Hustler Magazine, did, did you actually do copy editing for Hustler or was it for other publications? Yeah, I was the copy editor of Hustler for about two years, maybe two and a half. About two, I think, Hustler itself. Also, Hustler's Busty Beauties. Oh, yeah. Hustler's Barely Legal. And before that, I worked on uh, SWAT for the Prepared American, gun magazine, needless to say. 
and Fighting Knives, America's Most Incisive Cutlery Publication, which which was edited by a, a, a soldier for hire, I guess is the polite way of putting it, a mercenary. SWAT was edited by a former policeman. So I actually was happy when I was switched over to the porn side of the aisle from the weapons. You know, I actually felt morally pure doing porn compared to uh, yeah, yeah. how I'd felt doing the weapons publications. What, what did your parents think, or did they? Or did you tell them? Oh, sure, I did tell them, and they thought it was really funny at first. I actually just wrote an essay about this for a book that's coming out soon. But um, at first they thought it was sort of amusing and told small anecdotes about it to the neighbors. But then after, like, two years, I could tell the neighbors were starting to think, you know, I was a floozy of a daughter. Yeah. And so my parents got a bit bored of the whole thing. And so did I. And so I finally left. When I actually, when I sold my first novel is when I left. But, yeah, I actually had time to write the whole book, Working at Hustler, so I can't complain. Yeah. And also it was one of the most educational experiences of my life. Certainly more educational than grad school. That's for sure. Oh, yeah? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I learned a lot there. Just about people's longing for for companionship and for communion generally, for, for a social context. People's isolation it was very, very clear to me at Hustler that the culture is full of lonely people, and I really had never understood that as a teenager. You know? I was like 21 when I started working there, so I was young. I was just about to drink your beer, by the way. I was reaching for it. I, have, I haven't read your other books. This is your first book I read. Oh, I'm, I'm totally uh-huh. excited to read. Uh, They're all different. They're all different. Yeah, okay. I can't wait. The one that was written that's sort of most about the Hustler experience, actually, is called Everyone's Pretty. Yeah. And that was the one that came out, I guess, earlier this year as well, in January or February. Right. In February, Valentine's Day, that's what it was. Um, and that one is about this pornographer with messianic delusions. He's a drunk and... Uh, but sort of very very intelligent, but full of a desire to be immortal. Yeah. Right, do you have a writer's group uh, when you try to go through this? Ending? No, no, no. All by myself. Although I do have a couple of friends who are really good readers, who, and my husband, who's a really good reader, who read things for me before I send them to my agent. But really only three people in the world I really trust to, oh, wow. to read to read my work and comment on it in a way that's helpful but it speeds things along to have other people read your work because you're so used to looking at it that you become somewhat neutral in the face of it after a while so it, it helps to, uh, to have other people step in right at that moment when you're incredibly sick of it and exhausted by it um, and Everybody's Pretty also came out on Soft Skull mm-hmm. how, how did you hook up with uh, them? Oh, you know, I was, I've been bounced around my whole career from, in general, from big publisher to big publisher and okay. being orphaned by, by editors at every place I've ever been, Simon & Schuster, Henry Holt. Um, in other words, the editor leaves the company just as my book is coming out, which makes it really difficult to publicize it. So that keeps happening to me or has kept happening to me until I met Richard Nash, who's the soft skill publisher and who's great, who's the smartest person I've ever met in publishing and very charismatic and just a real... A real uh, power, uh, and I met him because my friend Josh Beckman, Joshua Beckman, who's a poet, sent him a copy of Everyone's Pretty back um, I don't know, three or four years ago, probably, and he liked it and asked if he could publish it. Yeah. And at that time, I was still with Holt, who published my previous novel, My Happy Life, 
and so I wasn't really willing to leave them yet, so it took me a while to to come around, but when I finally did, I, I thought Richard was the perfect editor, so I'm hoping to be with Soft Skull indefinitely. Uh, and money-wise, is it kind of uh, less advantageous monetarily with a smaller press? Or? I haven't been... I actually haven't uh, found out the answer to that yet, because that depends on how many copies of books we actually sell because whether you get the money up front or later um, you know it all it all can potentially work out to the same amount of money uh, because that's the way royalties work um, depending on how your sales go so with a small press like soft skill you get less up front but you tend to get royalties and um, you don't always get royalties if you're a literary writer and you get a biggish advance from a big press because you don't earn out that big advance ever. So, um, because they don't sell your book as they should be selling it, you know. So we'll see. I have high hopes because uh, Softscale has done a great job so far, and the response to the book has been really nice. Um, so I am hoping to, you know, make a little money. I never expect to, you know, become Donald Trump writing the kinds of novels that I write. Right, right. But. Uh, but I feel pretty happy about the trade-off between small press and big press. That's for sure. You know, I write chronologically. That is, I write in this very tedious, linear way, just going through the book from beginning to end, which not all fiction writers do. A lot of them sort of jump around in the pieces of the book that they write. Um, so literally, I started with the story of the husband and wife, but in my mind, I was starting with the story of Oppenheimer. And uh, that's that was sort of the symbolic basis for the book was Oppenheimer's sort of the arc of his fictionalized personal history that I created yeah. um, and Szilard was also important to me, I'm fascinated by Szilard who was never a celebrity the way that Oppenheimer still is in the culture um, but who had a, a really a truly extraordinary life and was always meeting meeting people who were running the world basically, you know, he just scurried around like a little Roach, <laughs> and even though he was not in a position of institutional power like Oppenheimer or even Fermi were, but he just had a way of getting to everyone and presenting his peace agenda to them. And so, in the book, to some degree, I, I replicate that. I mean, he really was this uh, self-appointed advocate for non-proliferation from the very beginning, from even before the bomb was built. He saw what was going to happen and agitated against it. Um, very exceptional individual. And yet, without sort of the obvious mystical spirituality of someone like Oppenheimer, very practical person, not easy to romanticize, Szilard, the way that Oppenheimer is. Um, so both of them fascinated me. And uh, But Oppenheimer is sort of the... I don't know, the sort of iconic center of the book. Oh, and completely endearing. I loved his character throughout. It was oh, I'm glad. Good, good. It's important. Both both Oppenheimer and uh, Szilard, and Fermi as well, actually, were such fascinating characters in their own right in life that they gave me great seeds for elaboration, embellishment, whatever. Oh, you know, I was... Um, I was reminded of the Fermata by Nicholson Baker just because mm -hmm. of the uh, the time warp thing. You ever read that? Well, I can't remember if I read the Fermata. I've, I read all his early books, and then 
around Vox, I became disillusioned with him because of Vox. Vox board. Yeah, Vox, I thought, was a real... Uh, an unfortunate choice. Um, but all his books before that I adored. And But I think the Fermata, was that the next one after Vox? I'm I not sure. So. And I can't remember where I, whether I actually went back to him <laughs> or not with Fermata. What happens in it? Well, especially with the, the hustler background and the loneliness, because it's kind of like he has this, um, this... He knows how to, like, stop time. And for the most part, he uses it just to masturbate and, like, pull women's clothes off, you know, so. <laughs> No, I think I must not have read that. Yeah. I would remember that. Yeah. What, what's your writing schedule? Do you write every day? Um, you know, I, because I have a toddler now, I can't always write every day. But I try, I try to write at least um, 500 to 1,000 words Monday to Friday. And then on the weekends, I write when I can. But... My little girl is about 20 months old, and she's she goes to nursery school from, like, 9 to 3, so I write during that time every day. Not for all of it, but during it. I used to write all the time, all the time, before I had a child. I just... Because I love to write it. There's nothing that makes me happier than writing. I love to do it. And if I don't do it on any particular day, I'm always in a bad mood when I go to bed. Oh, yeah. It's the thing I love most doing. I just love doing it. I have ever since I was probably 18 or 19. Uh, what advice do you have for beginning writers? I think to read a lot, really. When I've um, when I've been involved in workshops, which is, has not been very often in my life. Actually, the, the favorite workshops of mine that I ever did were as an undergrad. But um, whenever I, I see younger people who want to be writers uh, who don't read very much, I, I always find that highly suspect. <laughs> and um, so if you don't love reading, I think you can't, you can't love writing. And if you don't love writing, I don't, I don't think you can, I don't think you probably will ever be fulfilled by trying to be a writer. Loving the act of it is important. Oh, um, and then this is more of a stylistic question. Because uh, I, I love it when writers don't use quotations for dialogue, and it's and some people just go nuts over it. I know, I know. There's actually a lot of uh, people people really disagree over the, the punctuation convention I use in this book, which is M dashes for for uh, conversation, as you know, for dialogue instead of quotation marks. And I do not use that convention in all my books, but books that are particularly dialogue heavy, I prefer to use the M dash. For. And that's just because I actually find quotation marks more intrusive when you just have pages and pages of dialogue than the M-dash. But people disagree. I mean, everyone has their own view of punctuation, you know. Yeah. Uh, anyone who cares about language, that is. Um, and, of course, it's, it's mostly a European convention, the one that I use. Although William Gaddis, for example, uses it. There are major American writers who use that M-dash convention. Um, but mostly it's a European thing. And, for example, in my current book, I use quotation marks because it's not typically pages and pages of dialogue in a row uh-huh. and so the quotation marks are appropriate I feel right, right. Um, but yeah with this one there was you know there are whole chapters that are just pages and pages of people talking and it's not just two people talking at a time it's multiple people talking and I just personally find it easier to follow somehow uh, on the page when it's an M dash when there are multiple speakers and not a lot of connective tissue right 
So that's why I chose that. But um, but people really do have strong opinions, and not everyone likes the M dash. That's for sure. As an ex copy editor, I'm very like obsessed with punctuation and very interested in people's punctuation choices. But you know, your average person probably doesn't give a shit. I don't know. Yeah. Your average person would probably say, "I don't even know why she's bothering to talk about her M dashes." <laughs> but it's funny because I have had, I've actually had that question asked several times in interviews uh-huh. as well as by my copy editor at Soft Skull who didn't really approve of them really? yeah so I mean there's a lot of dissent with that particular choice but there's certainly a precedent for it in American literature yeah I mean it, it's a pacing thing too I think yeah yeah I agree and, and I read uh, on, you know I don't did I can't remember if Henry Miller you know used to not even use quotes and not even use anything just like you know. there's that too and I find that a little difficult to follow when there's actually no indicator that dialogue is beginning I find that a little irritating finally um, although I understand the impulse on the part of the writer not to in a certain sense it seems impure sometimes to interject punctuation marks right, right, right. and I can understand that but but frankly on just on a practical level it's it's too confusing I think I am working on a novel which is actually going to be the first in a trilogy, believe it or not, I'm using a genre convention, I guess, um, which is called How the Dead Dream, uh, and it's about a businessman who, who's very obsessed with money and who fetishizes money, and who, when his, when his fiancé is... I hate the word fiancé, actually. I'm going to say his girlfriend. When his girlfriend is uh, killed, has a sort of breakdown and begins to break into zoos to uh, sleep with animals at night, endangered animals that are on the brink of extinction. And when I say sleep with, I don't mean no in the biblical sense, as various people have thought when I (laughs) synopsized this book to them and been shocked by, but just that he's sort of desperate to know these animals whose species are about to pass into extinction. And so that's what happens. And that's most likely going to go through soft skull also. Absolutely, yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, I mean, you just want to, for one thing, be consistently with the same publisher so that you can actually have, like, a stable relationship in that part of your life. Yeah. And my books are each so different from each other that it's hard to find... I mean, I can always find someone to publish, you know, any of my books, but I can't always find someone who likes all of my books. Uh And I think with Richard that... I feel like I have that person who actually gets almost anything that I write. So it's incentive to stay with him for as long as he chooses to be a publisher, really. Is there any... um, Do you have any interest in uh, the uh, film options for the book? or? Yeah, there there has been some. um, And basically... It's out with a lot of different places right now, and they're all trying to package different directors with it and um, different screenwriters. And nothing's, it's not the kind of book where you just, they just pony up like half a million dollars for the option. Um, it's more about whether they can package it and then sell it. Um, because it's, you know, somewhat heady, and it's. And also, I hear a rumor that there's actually an Oppenheimer biopic in the works. This is just a rumor um, with Leo DiCaprio attached to star as Oppenheimer which would be a degradation of all that we hold dear in this world, I feel. Certainly all that I hold dear. But, um, but that's the rumor, so it may be that uh, Hollywood has had enough of Oppenheimer for this year. I don't know. I don't know. 
or like studios because you know a lot of them have no creative instinct at all if they go oh he's doing Oppenheimer we got to do one first you well know? I hope yeah, that'd be great yeah. <laughs> but but also they tend to buy um, non-fictional materials for that kind of celebrity movie oh, as well yeah. you know um but we'll see. I, there has been a lot of activity, just nothing has finally come of it. I mean, really a lot, which is nice. But, um, you know, Hollywood's so funny. It's just, it is a lot of hype, and then and, and everyone gets really serious about things, and, and then it's all just hot air oftentimes, I find. I've had one book optioned and nothing came of it, and, you know, I'm just sort of skeptical of anything that doesn't involve actual handing of money to me immediately you know Uh, anything else is just you know dust in the wind were you um were you raised in canada it was you know i was born in boston but i grew up in toronto from when i was like two to when i went off to college yeah really Yeah. yeah toronto is where i grew up my father was an egyptologist and so it's not a job that you can just do anywhere obviously chicago toronto uh, maybe a couple of other cities in North America, but so he took a job um, at the University of Toronto in the Royal Ontario Museum when I was two. So we moved up there. I was never actually a Canadian citizen, but um, but I certainly grew up as a Canadian person. You know, although we spent all our summers in Georgia on a peach farm, so I also had a lot of a lot of Bible Belt training at a young age. That's where the Christian fundamentalists come in. Oh, many of my relatives are uh, among that number. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh. Absolutely. It's not um, it's not an academic portrayal of, of fundamentalism. Yeah. Certainly, certainly a lot of that in my family. Huh. I'm sure they were very glad that you were at Hustler magazine. You know, they. I don't think they even. I don't think most of them even knew. Oh, yeah. No, we're not that close. <laughs> you, you didn't send them. Reasons, right? You didn't send them clips and like complimentary magazines. They have actually some of them have read reviews of my books or things that I've written because I write often for a wonderful uh, books editor in North Carolina uh, at the Raleigh News and Observer. I write a lot for him, and so my southern relatives have read. I think some of the things that I've written, um, but they certainly they certainly don't rush out to buy my books or anything like that. Is that, are they Baptist? Is that the big thing? There are some Baptists in the family. Um, that's probably the lion's share. Yeah. But we also have we also have some folks who actually have arsenals in their basements and believe that the the rapture is nigh and they have to be armed to the teeth. Wow. To meet it, so yeah. it's not just being a Baptist. I mean, there's plenty of benign Baptists around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So, and your parents didn't. Um, your parents kind of safeguarded you from all that. Yeah, my mother was is 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 the is the parent who's from the south. My father is was from the Boston area, um, and he actually grew up all around the world. His father was a diplomat, uh, and my mother left Georgia at quite a young age, and never really went back. Um, but yeah, they certainly insulated us from the more Bible thumping members of the family. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> Lydia Millet, thank you so much for talking with me. And thank you. It was really fun. It's really fun. Super fun. And, uh- Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. Remember to sign up for my online workshop starting March 4th at TonyDuchesne.com. I'll see you next week.